I really had to think about what, what I wanted to share with all of you. And, and I began to think of my husband's legacy. And I thought of the spiritual legacy that he had. And the thing that was most important, thank you, the thing that was most important about his life that stands out to me was that he finished well. He didn't just finish, he finished well. And that was so important to us because every marriage knows that there is a relationship that goes on between two people. Your kids don't know it. The mother and father, in-laws, they don't know that. There's just a relationship that takes place between two people. And we would talk about finishing well. We would talk about it. And, and I remember that we used to say, you know, the last thing that we ever want to do is to bring down the name of Jesus. That if that should happen, we want to we be taken before we make any kind of mistake. We want to serve God all the way to the end. And, um, and I'm just so grateful that, that it happened. And, you know, so many people have said, well, why, why didn't your husband get healed? And, um, and I said, he did. The Lord gave me 27 years with a man that I knew on our honeymoon. See, my dad died of cirrhosis of the liver. And I was with him every day until his death. And so I knew the stages and I knew the look and I knew everything about it. So on our honeymoon, I remember getting up early, my husband sleeping in as normal. And, uh, and I remember looking at his feet and it was like the Holy Spirit quickened me and said, he's sick. And I was like, oh my gosh, he's got the same thing as my dad. And so when he woke up, I asked him, are you sick? He said, no. I said, are you sure? He said, no. I said, don't lie to me. We just got married, don't lie to me. And he said, no, I'm not sick. I, have you ever been sick? No. And so I just said, oh, okay. And I just kind of put it in the back of my mind. And so when the disease took over his body, the Lord told me, I gave you 27 years with a man that I held him together for you. And I praise the Lord because he could have taken him so many years earlier. But what happened is that he allowed all of us to graduate. We all graduated from school. My, my daughters, my son, and me, we all graduated, and then he graduated. And I'm so grateful to the Lord because he's so, so sensitive and so caring for what we feel. And so as I was thinking about his legacy of finishing well, that's what I decided to share with you today on some qualities that I feel that have stood out in his life and, um, and that I know that if he was here, this is what he would want to impart once again to you. Those of you who have been here for a long time and, and you have been under my husband's preaching or you've heard, listened to his uh, tapes, he said the same thing over and over a thousand different ways but it was always his same heart. 
It never changed. It was always the same. And so please forgive me if every so often I shed a tear because even though it's been 11 years, in two weeks, um, it's like yesterday for me. And so just talking about him and remembering him just kind of makes me a little wistful. And Linda and I, um, she, her and her husband were led to the Lord by my husband and we were next door neighbors. And now that her husband's uh, in heaven, mine is too, we, told, we said that they're sharing uh, matches. They're right next door again. And I think Danny probably got squeezed in there somewhere too because Danny said, I'm not going to be left out. <laughs> but anyway, I have, uh, I'm just going to read you this scripture. And I have two different versions that I want to read you in Hebrews 12:1, And it says, so since we stand surrounded by all those who have gone before an enormous cloud of witnesses, let us drop every extra weight, every sin that clings to us and slackens our pace, and let us run with endurance the long race set before us. And then this is the version that I really liked. It says, since we have so many heroes and heroines of the faith who have gone before us and left us their faithful testimonies, these encompass us and speak to us even now. They should compel us to cast aside the barriers that would keep us from finishing well. With renewed vigor, we should set for ourselves the task of finishing well, persevering with marathon-like determination and joining with them. Gilda Radner, who was one of the original cast of Saturday Night Live, she was on there many years ago and she told the story of a dog. And it was her nanny's dog. Her nanny was named Dibby and she had a dog. And it was just the mutt but the dog was pregnant, and so it was a little big, and I don't know how long dogs are pregnant, because I've always had boys, but she was, also, she was due to have her puppies in about a week. She was out in the yard one day, and she got in the line of the lawnmower. Both her hind legs were cut off. They rushed her to the vet, and the vet said, you know, I can sew her up, or I can put her to sleep. But the puppies are okay. What do you want to do? And Dibby said, keep her alive. So the vet sewed up her back legs, her backside, and, and over the next week, this little dog had to learn how to walk again. She didn't just sit there. She was pregnant. And when you're pregnant, you know, you just can't, like, you got to do something. And so what she did is she learned how to walk. She would take two steps with her front, and then she'd flip her back side. And then she'd take another two steps, and she'd flip the back side. And she, that's how she learned how to walk. And then a week later, she had her six puppies. And she weaned them. She fed them. She did all of that. And when the babies started to walk, guess what? They all walked like her, take two steps, flip, take two steps, flip. They all walked like her, just like their mom. That's what legacy is. That 
we pass down the good, the bad, and sometimes the ugly. So today I wanna hopefully bring some areas out that we might need to change. And no matter how difficult it may be, I wanna be able to remind you that your children are gonna walk the way you walk. Your children are going to believe the way you believe. So you have to make sure of how you're walking today. So what's a legacy? It's something that we pass on to future generations that affects them in a lot of different ways. Although it can't be seen, you can't measure it, you can't count it, but a spiritual inheritance is probably the most priceless thing that a parent or grandparent can pass on. And it's imparted over the course of a lifetime. You can't just say, okay, I'm gonna give you an inheritance and it's done. No, it's passed on days, years, and years, and years. When adults use godly words and they display godly actions, that passes on an inheritance. And my children are here, so a lot of the things that I'm gonna be sharing, they can vouch for. There were a lot of words that were not allowed in my house. Words like stupid, shut up. And you, some of you are thinking, golly, how dumb. No, see, I wanted them to respect each other. And that meant what, and, and this, is, this was the rule in the house. If I said it or my husband said it, they could say it. So no matter what words we said, if we said it, they could say it. Boy, did it narrow the boundaries for us. But it was good because it kept us in line. We couldn't use those words, shut up and stupid, as minor as they may be. But we didn't say them, and neither could they. Now, I know they did. But they didn't say them in our presence. You can't give what you don't have. You can't give what you don't live. And that's why every parent and grandparent is responsible for developing their own spiritual life first. Every person in this room has a legacy. Every person in this room has a different and distinct fingerprint. And that's why it's important that you figure out what do you want to leave your children your grandchildren. What is it that you want to pass on as an aunt or an uncle or a cousin? What do you want to be remembered for? Everyone has a unique fragrance. What smells good on me does not smell the same way on somebody else because we are unique. And in that same way, that fragrance smells different. That's the way a legacy is. It still smells after they've departed. And that's kind of what we've been talking about, the fragrance of my husband. It sounds really great to leave a legacy, but the flip side of it, in my husband's case, is that your dreams aren't always seen. They're pretty much fulfilled after you're gone. He didn't get to see the beginning of Cape Town. He had a burden, a passion, but he didn't get to see it. And so there's gonna be a lot of things that you're not probably gonna be able to see but you can begin to have that passion and pray for that. Because people who leave legacies, they're flexible. They look to the future, 
They invest beyond themselves. That's what Pastor Sonny and Julie have been doing all these years. They've been leaving a legacy. They've laid down their lives to leave a ministry and a people that will eventually inhabit every inner city of the world. They have been planting and investing within us a passion for the world that will eventually touch everyone and all the generations to come. This church, Victory Outreach Hayward, stands as a model to the legacy that was passed down to my husband and myself. And all of you are an answer to prayer. All of you are part of the legacy that my husband left. So many times, believers, we get all caught up in the day-to-day -day stuff. It takes all the energy out of our lives. Getting involved in gossip, getting involved in criticism and murmuring over the smallest little thing. And we never answer the question, what am I leaving for the next generation? What am I leaving for the future generation? You don't think your kids listen to you talk about your pastor? You don't think your kids listen to you talk about your leader? They hear you. See, that's one thing my husband and I didn't do. And I'm sure we slipped. But we had made it a commitment that we would never talk about the people in our church in front of them. And there were times when the people in the church were criticizing us. The people in the church were bad-mouthing us. And my kids were running to them. And we said, not a word. We did not want to influence them in a wrong way. We always tried our best to make sure that we didn't leave them the legacy of looking bad at this person or that person or that person. See, I was thinking of the legacy that my husband left and I chose a few of his qualities to share with you tonight. None of these qualities, and I can tell you right now, not one of these qualities would be possible without Christ. Not one. Not a smidgen, not an iota, not a nothing. My husband used to say, Nuna tuna, nothing. <laughs> but I was privileged to see the making of a man of God. The first quality I believe that my husband left as his legacy is, number one, his passion for souls. In his words, he said, I caught a hot and I don't want to get well. He always said he wanted to populate heaven. He experienced the love of Christ and a transformed life, and he wanted to share it with everyone. He had such a passion for people, lost people, broken people, hurting people, and all because he was radically transformed. When we first came to Hayward, he would go out on the streets every day and witness. And so the word on the street was out. There is a church right there on Ruth's Road, and they'll help you. They'll be there for you. And Esteban had just turned two years old. And, and I remember one night, it was probably about 9, 9.30, I heard a knock on the door. And I went to the door. And as soon as I opened the door, I was, whoa, alcohol. I mean, it was like bad. And uh, I, I had turned on the light. And, and I, I saw this, this man and this woman. And it looked like they hadn't bathed in long time they had alcohol 
I mean, it was pretty bad. And uh, I said, can I help you? And he said, yeah, I heard you were at church and you help people. I was like, hold on. <laughs> so I went to go grab my husband. He went to the door and he goes, come on in, come on in. Now, their odor preceded them already. So they came into the house and... Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of there, and I'm holding on to Esteban. He's just a little kid. And, and uh, they said, you know, we don't have a place to sleep tonight. And we heard that you're a church that helps people. Can you help us out? And then my husband just kind of like totally ignored me. <laughs> totally. And he said, you know what? You can sleep in my bed. <laughs> I was like... No, he's not. <laughs> and, he's, and, and they're like, oh, no, 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 we don't want to take your bed. And I'm like, and I'm like yes. You know? <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 not a problem, not a problem. You can have our bedroom. It's not a, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what am I going to have to fumigate? What am I going to have to do? And, um, and he did. They slept in our bed. I slept with Esteban on a twin bed, and my husband slept on the floor next to us. The next morning, they got up, I made them breakfast, and they went on their way. Never know who they were, never knew. I don't even remember their names. I don't remember anything. I just remember that's the kind of man he was. He was Christ-like. I remember our, our first date. We went out, and I'm thinking, ooh, we're going to talk and, you know, do all that. He didn't even talk to me. He talked to the waitress. He talked to the people next to him. He talked to everybody around about Jesus. And I, I was like, I don't, what is up with this guy? You know, what am I? Yeah, chopped liver? Exactly. <laughs> but he was always sharing the gospel. That was his passion. He had a passion for souls. All the way from our first date, all the way to the end on his hospital bed. He was evangelizing. He was sharing the gospel. As sick as he was, he would tell me, you gotta bring me some flyers. I gotta pass it out to that nurse. I gotta pass it out to the other nurse. I gotta pass it out to the doctor. I'm like, you're sick. He goes, so? <laughs> he just had such a passion. If you read any kind of Christian biographies, there's one thing that every man and woman of God, great man and woman of God did, and that not only did they share the gospel, but they mentored. And my husband never went anywhere alone, ever. He did what Christ did. He mentored. He shopped with Anthony, and he mentored. He ate with a lot of you, and he mentored. That's what he always did. And every Christian leader in their biography, you will find that every single one of them had at least 10 to 15 mentors in their lifetime. Mentors provide two things. They provide accountability and they provide relationship. And if you don't have a mentor in your life, you need to get one or two or five or 10 because they keep you 
accountable, and they keep you in a relationship. That's the best way to leave a legacy, is to mentor and to model. The biblical term for mentoring is discipleship. Mentoring is just a friend walking with a friend, eating, talking, shopping, doing whatever. But you mentor and you pour your life. And that's what my husband did, is he poured his life into so many of you. And I think that it's something that you need to evaluate your own life today. Are you being mentored and are you mentoring? Are you sharing the gospel with every person? Are you, do you have his exampleship of carrying flyers? You know that he would take Hayward flyers to the Philippines? I'm right, Christian? He really did. And I was like, why did you bring Hayward flyers? He goes, it's a flyer. You got to share the gospel. They don't even know where Hayward is. But he did it everywhere he went in his back pocket. Every, every time I had to wash his clothes, I always had to check the back pocket. Because in the beginning, I would wash every flyer. And he'd get mad at me. Did you know you wasted money? That's how he was. And that's why you need to do things that are going to last. Leaving a legacy demands leaving a piece of your heart with other people. And that's what my husband left. He left a piece of his heart with all of you. The second thing that I felt that he had is he had a passion for faith and vision. One of the first scriptures that he heard was the just shall live by faith. And that became his relationship with God all the way up to the end of his life. His relationship with God was intentional because his faith and his vision marked it. He always had a different perspective. He was radical in his thinking. I, that's what attracted me to him because he wasn't like all the other guys. He was just like so way out of the box. I was like, who is this guy? I really want to get to know him because he just didn't think normal. He thought different <laughs> because he believed for the impossible. There was one time, and I know I've shared this many times, where in the beginning months, it was really hard. We, we didn't have anything. Linda can account to it. We had no furniture. You walked into our living room, there was nothing there. So I had to take everybody to the kitchen table. I had a kitchen table. And um, so we were in there, and, and, but there were many, many times where we didn't have anything to eat. And when I say anything, there was no cans. Because sometimes you look in the cupboard and you go, there's nothing to eat, and there's a whole cupboard full. But we really had nothing. And so there, were, there was two nights that I made ketchup soup. And, and it was for me and it was for my son. And after the second day, he started crying. I don't want this. I don't want this. <laughs> and so I, then I got mad because I'm the mom. And it's like I want to provide for him. And I, there was nothing I could do. I mean, there wasn't anything I could make. Mustard soup? No, didn't, no, didn't go too good. But ketchup soup was like tomato soup. So it was not that bad. You know, put a little salt and pepper and hey, it's pretty good. But uh, after two days, I was like, no, nah, I ain't doing this. I ain't doing this anymore. And I went to him and I just started complaining. And I was, you know what? You need to go out there. You need to get some money. We don't have any food. And I just got it on. And just like every wife knows how to do, I was on him. I was just on him. 
And I was like, I'm not going to live like this. And we came out here to start a church and we don't even have anything to eat. And as it is, you know, we only had, we only had a, a small budget. And in that budget, I had included diapers. Well, to, for my husband, that was not part of the budget. Flyers were part of the budget, no diapers. So I had to like quickly, quickly train him to go because there were no more diapers. He was not gonna buy diapers. He goes, I'll be right back. I'm gonna go buy diapers. He come back with flyers. And it was like, it was an ongoing uh, feud. But when I, I was really upset with him and he just, he puts up his hand and he goes, I'll be right back. And I thought, okay, where's he going? He went into the garage office. And then I, I began to hear him praying. And I'm like, oh, I want him to do something. And I could hear him praying and praying and just calling out on God. And right about, I don't know, five, ten minutes after he started praying, I heard a knock on the door. And I don't know if Annie is here, but there were, um, there were three women that, that came to the door. I, when I opened the door, I said, yes. She goes, is this Victory Outreach? I said, yes. She goes, oh, I'll be right back. Okay. So she went out and, and she brought two other women in here in, to the door. And in their arms were two grocery bags each. And she said, the Lord spoke to me this morning and told me to, to buy you groceries. I was like, who are you? Man. I didn't even know who they were. I, I had no, I had never met them. My husband had never met them. Anyway, when they started bringing groceries, I was like, oh my gosh. And I ran to the garage and I, you should come over here. You should see this. You should see this. Go, what? I said, there's three ladies and they brought groceries. He goes, thank, he's not talking to me. Thank you, Lord, for answering my prayer, for speaking to my wife. <laughs> And I'm like, all right, all right, all right. Come on, come and meet them. So he, he came out and we met them. We're like, how did you hear about us? And he goes, you know, you came here through our prayers. We have been praying for a victory outreach. They had been praying for a year for a victory outreach. And we were in answer to prayer. They found out we were there. They brought, they went, they took three trips. My whole counter, the floor, everything was filled with with uh, groceries and that was to God be the glory because I complained, my husband prayed, God answered. Because when my husband heard from the Lord, he heard from the Lord. And if, you know, I, I would give my two cents and if he heard from God, he would just tell me straight out, don't even pray about it. The answer is no. And I'll be like, okay. Because his life of faith kept him. It kept him focused. It kept him going. His, his faith kept him from plateauing in his walk with God. And every pastor, minister, leader, and if you've been saved a while, you know what it is to plateau. You know what it is to function and not feel what is really what you should be feeling. But my husband knew that his strength, his strength 
was also his weakness. He knew that that's where the enemy was going to tap him. Because competent people plateau. We can minister without the presence of the Holy Spirit. When you know the jargon, you know the words, you know how to minister, you know how to do it. And we, we would talk about this all the time. And he kept his faith and his vision strong because he continued to be a learner. He knew that if he stayed learning from a multitude of resources, that God would be able to re release new energy, new vision, new ideas to help him to continue in this race. He, he was not a man who never failed. He had many failures. He had many things that he had to live through. But he learned from them. He learned from them. He learned from his failures. He learned from reading books. He learned from tapes. Back then it was tapes. He learned. And those of you who may be in a plateau, if you stay a learner, that's your insurance policy against plateauing. You, because you, learning new things forces us to grow and develop. If we're not reading, we're not changing. If we're not changing, we're not growing. And if we're not growing, we're in trouble. My husband also knew the times of renewal. He knew the sun. I mean, oh my gosh, my husband was a sun worshiper. Totally. Every little bit of sun. He would go in the backyard just to take a book and just look at the sun. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, I'm relaxing. And he would relax in the sun. Not me. I'd run away from it. But he loved the sun. And he took every opportunity to get in the sun and take it all in. Those were his times of refreshing. He would feel better when he took five minutes in the sun. What's your time of refreshing? Because he knew that if he didn't take advantage of those renewals, he could slip into plateauing. He could rely on past experiences to get by. He knew that his vision would get cloudy if he didn't have renewals. 1 Corinthians 9.24 says, I am serious. This is a different version. I'm serious about finishing well in my Christian ministry. I discipline myself for fear that after challenging others into the Christian life, I myself might become a casualty. He understood that. He knew, he knew, he knew that the potential was always there for him to be tempted and to walk away. And that's why he was a man of prayer. He was a man of fasting. You know, in the 27 years that we were married, I could count on one hand how many times he did not roll out of bed on his knees. I would trip out. I would be like, don't you want to brush your teeth first before you talk to God? You know? He was like, I'm talking to God. I'm like, you sure? I mean, it was like, it was, you know, me, I have to brush my teeth, comb my hair, wash my face. Got to look good for God. He didn't have to look good for God. He would just roll out of bed and get on his knees. He was a man of prayer, man of fasting. He spent time reading and studying God's word and not just for developing sermons either. He did it for his own spirit. He, was, uh, he had a passion for faith and vision. The third thing that he had was a passion for our marriage and family. I prayed for a man who would love people. I prayed for three things. He would love people, love the streets, and make me laugh. 
I got all those three. Some of them I didn't like after a while. But uh, he, he kept me laughing for all 27 years. And as I was reading in the book of Genesis, one of my favorite characters is Joseph. And Joseph only lived 17 years with his family, but he left a mighty legacy. And somehow during those 17 years, there was an imprint on his life that enabled him to stand up against the temptations and the attractions of the world that he was able to leave a great legacy. Now, I don't know how Joseph did it because in his family, his background, there was nothing but lying, deceit, immorality, manipulation. How he got to be the way he did was beyond me. But in the same way that I looked at Joseph, I looked at my husband. He only lived 52 years. And despite his family background, all drug addicts, he was able to make an imprint in this world. Like Joseph, my husband was transformed. He did not blame his family's genetic problems on how he turned out. He didn't blame the dysfunctional behavior of his family. He didn't blame the disorders or the hangups or the curses or any other negative thing that went on in his family at part of his life before Christ. Because when he accepted Christ, that old person stopped existing. He didn't blame, well, you know where I grew up, you know what happened. No, he, didn't, he never said anything like that. He believed God had transformed him and he would just go forward and not blame it. his family, his, his uncles, his aunt, nobody. He became a drug addict because he became a drug addict, not because of anybody else. And then he accepted Christ and that was it. No excuses. Because see, God specializes in changing us and conforming us into his image, no matter what our family background. Some of you need to stop blaming your family. You need to stop saying, well, it's a curse in my family. No, you need to be, break the chain of curse in your family. You break the chain. You break it. My husband broke that chain of drug addiction and all his family is now off of drugs. He did not get to see all of them off drugs, but they are now off of drugs. I was the chain that broke alcoholism in my family. My father died of alcoholism and my family started going that route. I came to the Lord and broke that chain. And that's, what ha that's where you have to stand up and say, this is no longer gonna continue. You have to start a legacy. The Bible says, what is it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? But my husband reworded it. And he said, what is it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his wife and family? I remember, I, I shared here a couple of weeks ago, I was very vulnerable, and I'm not gonna get into all the little details that I did, but I will tell you this. In the 43 years that I've been serving the Lord, I've seen great men of God lose their families. How sad is it when a mighty man of valor gains a title, a position, prestige, accolades, awards, and he loses his family in the process. That's a compromise. I remember one time, and I shared this with Hayward, we were married about 15, 17 years. And we went through a 
12.0 Richter earthquake. It was, it was bad. It was really bad. And the choice of marriage or ministry was on the table. I wanted one or the other. I didn't want to do both. But my husband wanted both. He said, we could do this. No, no, we can't do it. We just can't do it. We can do this. And anyway, it, it turned out that we decided to do it, to continue. The church didn't have a clue what was going on. They just thought everything was great. Like most pastors, we know how to do it real well. But we both decided to work harder. But sometimes, you know, it, it is difficult. Your pastors have a very difficult time sometimes because you do not understand the spiritual warfare that they're having to experience. You think that it's just so easy to do what they do. I'm here to tell you, it's not. The spiritual warfare is heavier than any of you could imagine. That's harder than anything. You get spiritual warfare with your children, you get spiritual warfare with your spouse, you get spiritual warfare every other way, but your, the pastor's home is constantly being attacked. Sometimes men desire their wives to submit no matter what. And I'll, I'll let you know that the worst thing a man can do is use scripture at his wife. It's the worst thing you can do. Because my husband tried it. He said, the Bible says you're supposed to submit. In other words, what he was trying to tell me is just do what I tell you to do. So I remember when my husband told me those words. The Bible says you are to submit. And I came right back at him. And I said, the Bible also says that you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church and died for it. Are you ready to die? <laughs> Needless to say, he didn't use scripture on me anymore. I don't know how you treated your wife or how you do treat her, but when we were first married, I was treated like one of the guys. And growing up with guys, it was easy for me because I was always around the guys. And one of the things that guys love to do is that guys love to cap. Well, I get together with Anthony and Chucky and we just cap. It just, I don't know, it just comes back. And everybody likes to put each other down. You know, you just kind of like laugh at each other and joke and, and you know, it's, that's just the way it is in the neighborhood. And so I remember those of you who have been here a long time, how many of you remembered how many sermon illustrations I was used as? Every single sermon. I was used as a sermon illustration and it was hurtful. And I would tell my husband that it hurt me and I would be, you know, pointed out to him and his response to me was, did you see how God used you today? The altar was full.
He always had a good comeback. Those were the difficult years. Those years, he was still learning how to live with me with other understanding. He hadn't yet learned how deep those illustrations were affecting me. So when our marriage experienced that earthquake, it just so happened that he had just finished reading an article that said that the stronger person in a marriage would always be the first one to humble themselves and apologize. And after that, he began to apologize so much, I was like, what's up with you? Why are you always apologizing? And then he told me, and because I'm just as competitive as he is, after that, we both were trying to be the first one to apologize because we both wanted to be the stronger one. Funny. But you know what? He was always the stronger one. He was always the more humble one. He was always the one that asked for forgiveness more. And in the last 13 years of our marriage, my husband learned about agape love. He learned the love that God says we are to have one for another. And this type of agape love is so strong that it knows no limits, it knows no boundaries, how far, how wide, how deep, or how high it will go to show that love. It's the highest form of love. It's a sacrificial kind of love, and every spouse needs to get that kind of love for their spouse. It isn't looking for what you can get, and he was famous for saying that, but always looking for what you can give. It will shower love upon another person regardless of what their response was. When you love someone with a pure love, you don't expect anything back in return. It's impossible for you to feel hurt or let down when you agape someone. It's a no strings attached kind of love. It's like, I'll love you regardless. I'll love you even if you don't do this for me. I will still love you even if you fail. Even if you don't do this, I'll still love you. Just like our Heavenly Father. I don't know where you're at in your marriage, but I do need to ask you this. If my husband would, was here, he would say, do you still show love to your wife or your husband the same way you did before you were married? Because see, my husband spent time on our marriage. We worked at it. And another thing that he did is he worked at being a father. He was definitely the fun one in our family. He was the one that always took the kids out to have fun. I was the disciplinarian. He was the fun. But I will tell you this, they missed me. <laughs> I remember one time I was gone I had gone to Rosarito or I had gone on a retreat or something, I, I can't remember. And my husband, you know, when I would walk in the door, I knew everything that had taken place while I was gone because everything was there. The food, the clothes, everything was all over the place. They didn't put anything away. And so I remember calling home and Stephanie says, Mom, when are you coming home? I said, why? She goes, because we get to stay up all night and I'm tired. I want to go... <laughs> I said, oh, now you want the discipline. <laughs> As a parent, what kind of training are you providing your children with? And what kind of a legacy are you passing on? And the last quality that I want to share is the passion for endurance. 
In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, it says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And in a paraphrased version, a small portion, it says, I am serious about finishing well in my Christian ministry. I discipline myself for the fear that after challenging others in the Christian life, I myself might be a casualty. During our times of marriage and pastoring, there was a lot of hurdles that we had to go over. When we got sent out, we didn't have any training. I have to apologize to all the oldies. I'm so sorry. We had no training. We were just sent out. I mean, now they have trainings and they have marriage uh, seminars and they have discipleship and all of the things that you see now, none. We just went out with a passion to win souls. That's, that was all we had. We didn't have the proper training. I mean, Linda was my guinea pig. <laughs> Her and Dominic, they were our guinea pigs because we, you know, we just went out there just, we wanted to do work for God. And in the process, we had to overcome the hurdles of failure and frustration and, and sometimes even depression and low self-esteem. And, and we were discouraged many times, but thank God we were never discouraged at the same time. If he was discouraged, I was encouraged. If I was discouraged, he was encouraged. Whatever, but we were opposites, thank God. And there were times when it got difficult, times when the demands of life and ministry were really, really pressuring, and we felt like everything around us was just crumbling. I think in Victory Outreach, we have had the most church sites than any other church. We hold the record. How many churches did we have? 42. Sheesh. Yeah, you clap now. But there were, we had some services. Oh, my gosh. I remember we, we, went, to a, a, we went to a service. We had the hall. We had everything. It was for Father's Day. We had a whole service planned, and we go out there to the hall, and the janitor decided not to come because it was Father's Day. He wanted to take the day off. So it was like, oh my gosh, we had all these people. We didn't know how to get in. So my husband says, hey, there's a park. Let's go to the park. So we had church in the park. And he was just like real creative, like thinking quick. I mean, we just had so many different uh church buildings, we'd be in a different church on Wednesday, on Friday, on Sunday, on Sunday night. We'd be in four different buildings and people would be calling, you know, where are we going to have church? Call us on Friday. Where are we going to have church? Call Sunday morning. And the phone was always ringing. Where are we having church? And sometimes I'd forget, where are we having church at? We had so many buildings and it, sometimes it got a little discouraging. Sometimes it got a little disheartening. Times of plenty and times of being without. But we knew that it was going to take more than tools and techniques to get us through the responsibility of marriage and ministry. It was going to take total dependence on the Lord. 
If there's one thing that I knew, that I knew, that I knew, is that my husband knew how to get a hold of God. And because my husband knew how to get a hold of God, that brought security to me. It brought tremendous security. Even though it didn't look like it sometimes, but I was secure in the fact that he could hear God. Without a radical transformation in his heart, nothing would have happened. You might have looked good on the outside, but it would have all come out because whatever you got on the inside eventually will come out. Steve was a runner in high school. He knew about endurance, and he always wanted to finish the race and finish it well. His desire was to fulfill our mission statement, to evangelize and disciple the hurting people of the world. He wanted to train, develop, inspire, and instill within people the desire to fulfill their potential in life with a sense of dignity, belonging, and destiny. How could he endure? He was a humble man. He had a servant attitude. And, you know, I know that we used to go places and there were always the ushers there. Can I carry your briefcase? Can I? And he would be, no, I can carry it. Well, but, but let, no, I can carry it. He, he just, he didn't want to be fussed over. He didn't like that. He said, man, you know, I'm just a man. I have a calling, but that doesn't make me special. You have a calling and you have a calling and you have a calling. He didn't want to be treated like royalty. He wanted to be treated just like one of the guys. That was his attitude. That was the humility that he had. He was all, you know, when he preached that message about a tugboat, he, that was him. He was that second fiddle. He was that tugboat. He was a pastor who did menial jobs. I couldn't understand it. You know, those of you who have been around for a while, he used to go buy air fresheners for the church. And then he would put all the air fresheners in. He'd put them underneath the chairs. And I would be like, why do you do that? He goes, church got to smell good. <laughs> he was funny like that. How many of you remember him buying air fresheners? <laughs> he just, he did menial jobs. And you know what? It took me a while to understand why he did things like that. He did it on purpose. He did it to keep his feet on the ground. He did it to, to be able to say, you know what, Lord, who am I? Who am I? Just a man transformed by the grace of God. I'll go buy air fresheners. I'll go buy the toilet paper. I'll go buy the hand soap. And he did all of that. And I would say, let the ushers do it. No, I'm going to do it. Let, let hospitality, no, I'm going to do it. And he would just do the things that kept his feet on the ground. The Christian race has been compared to running a marathon because of the endurance that is needed. And as soon as we make Christ our Savior, we begin our race to pursue the goal of finishing. Many of you have been running this race and maybe you've hit a wall. The wall to a runner is a figure of speech when your body gets tired and just wants to give up. You just want to stop. Your brain tells you to stop. Your body tells you to stop. Everything says stop. We're going to hit a lot of walls in our Christian walk, but we're always going to have to fight that urge to quit, to stop running, to drop out, to get some rest, to stop pushing. We're always going to feel like we're at that point. 
And maybe there's an obstacle in your path. Maybe you have a hurdle of failure, depression, loneliness, anger, frustration, envy, doubt, discouragement. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to jump over the hurdles. He does. You know, this family reunion, you know what it really is about? It's about forgiveness. Because that's what families, families hurt each other. That's what family does. I know I have a big family. We always have, we have family reunions every year. Every year for the last 59 years, we've had a family reunion. Every year. And every year, it's a time for forgiveness. It's a time of just hugging and accepting. It's a time of just saying, you know what? Let it go. Whatever it was, let it go. That's part of the endurance. Forgiveness. My husband was great at it. He taught me so much about forgiveness. He could go up to somebody who had just criticized him, heard him talk bad about him, and stick out his hand and say, hey, you want to go to lunch? That's the kind of man he was. You know, if you grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons, like I did, you always were watching Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote. And Wiley Coyote, he learned to sustain perseverance because every cartoon, he brought out new techniques to capture the Roadrunner. And every cartoon always ended up with Wiley Coyote being beaten, bruised, kicked, black and blue. But there was always that gleam in his eye that said, you know what, next time, next time, I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna persevere, I'm gonna keep going, I'm gonna keep doing what I'm supposed to do, which is to get you, and I'm gonna win. And that's the kind of gleam that my husband had. Because he knew that we were in a supernatural race. He knew that he needed supernatural strength and perseverance. Hebrews 13, 8, uh, 13, 7 and 8 says, Remember your former leaders. Think back on how they lived and ministered. Imitate those excellent qualities you see in their lives. For Jesus Christ is the same today as he was in the past and how, as he will be in the future. What he did for them, he will do for you and enable you. We have been given the instructions to follow the pattern of those who have gone before us. We're supposed to dwell and think about our biblical leaders and look at their ethics, look at their morals, look at their techniques, look at how they develop their skills. And then we're supposed to imitate them. We're supposed to integrate them into our life. That way we could be able to finish well. As we get older, we don't really change much. We just become more of who we really are. So how's your passion for souls today? When was the last time you won a soul to the Lord? How's your passion for your faith and vision? Are you a complainer because things don't happen right, right away? Or can you believe God? How's your passion for your marriage and family? How are you guys getting along? How's your passion to endure to the end? How we finish this race is the finale to every test of perseverance and endurance. I don't know what your obstacle is. I don't know what your wall is. I don't know where you're at, but I do know this, 
that as I was preparing this message, the one thing that I will tell you is that my husband's heart would be that each of you would finish well. You would finish well. Not just finish, but finish well. All the way to the end, all the way to the end, he believed and he trusted in his Savior. And that's what he left you as a legacy. He left that to you, that you wouldn't get sidetracked, that you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't stop the race, you wouldn't get disheartened, discouraged, you wouldn't let things get to you, that you would just persevere all the way to the end. Why don't you stand with me tonight? I know that I brought out a whole lot of stuff. And I know it's, it's been hard in here and you guys have endured. You guys already have endured. But I do know this. Some of you are probably thinking about the legacy you're leaving. Some of you are probably thinking of the qualities that have been left to you that maybe you haven't been following up on. You haven't been capturing the legacy. You haven't won a soul in a long time. You've gotten out of the habit of sharing the gospel, of being a light in the midst of darkness. Your faith has been wavering. Your vision has shriveled up. You're not discipling. Maybe you're at odds with your spouse. Maybe your children are not in church. You need to change the legacy that you're leaving. And lastly, maybe some of you are at that brink where you're like, you know what? I only came here to just see people. I didn't come here for nothing else. I just wanted to see people. No, you came here to get a hold of God. And what I'm going to do is, if you have something between you and God you want to share, then I'm just going to open up the altars for you to come tonight. And I know it's packed, but it's between you and God. No one else, just between you and God. You're welcome to come.